He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. I'm your co-host, Jack Heald. And joining us today is somebody that I, I bet I started following you 18 months ago on Twitter, Cynthia Thurlow, NP. And I love that, NP. Welcome. We're glad Thank to have you. you. Thank you. And, and I love that you've been following me on Twitter. You get to see a whole other side of my personality depending on my... Depending on my day, I can be a little snarky at times. This is literally the only side of your personality that I know. So for all I know, that's that's all there is. Yes. So Phil, uh, tell us why you invited Cynthia to be on the show. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I would say I'm, I guess, more fortunate than you, Jack, in that I probably came across Cynthia a few years ago. Uh, I think it was even before the... Uh, it was probably between the first and the second TED Talk, and the second TED Talk, of course, has become uh, legendary. Um, but uh, you know, we have a common background. Cynthia's uh, background in uh, allopathic medicine and, and cardiology uh, certainly. Uh, I want to I want to stop you right there because for people, I know there's a lot of people out there who do not who've probably never even heard the word allopathic. Somebody define that for us. I know what it is, but that's just because I've been working with you for a while. So yeah, al- define I mean, that. allopathic medicine is just basically that you have MD or DO or uh, you know NP after your uh, name, and you sort of tradition the traditional you know what people think of when they go to the hospital or they go to their mainstream medical practitioner. I also would dovetail and say that when I think about traditional allopathic medicine, it's very symptom focused. So if you come in with a cough, we're going to address the things to get rid of your cough. We may not be thinking about root cause. And so on a lot of levels, I would say I'm very grateful that we have the the quality of care that we do have in terms of emergency and urgent care medicine. It's the prevention and the chronic disease management that I really uh, struggle with. And one of many reasons why I needed to leave clinical medicine to feel like I could make a larger impact on my patients. All right. So allopathic medicine is practiced by those who have received their medical certification through what are the, the normally probably the first certification bodies that people think of when they think about a doctor. Um, the American Medical Association says you're a doctor if you've had this particular type of of education. So it 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 implies a particular type of education, which necessarily also implies probably doesn't have another kind of education, which I hope we'll get into that. And um, practices a particular has a has a particular model of human health. But certainly not the only model. Okay. There you go, folks. Your word of the day, allopathic medicine. Carry on. I think that's a great part, a great uh, point to actually start the conversation because uh, Cynthia and I, I think, have uh, come to a similar realization that allopathic medicine leaves a lot to be desired. And we spent all our time, uh, and I still spend a lot of my time, you know, just focusing, just chasing those symptoms and just trying to alleviate those symptoms and not looking at the broader issue and not looking for root causes. And so I'd love to hear Cynthia's uh, thoughts on, you know, that frustration and uh, how she became aware, uh, I guess, that there was more. Well, I think for me, I started, you know, I I spent 16 years in uh, cardiology and prior to that, it was ER medicine. So 20 years uh, total in clinical medicine. And for me, I just kept seeing patterns. I kept saying, yes, I can address my patients, angina or chest pain. Yes, I can send them for a cath. Yes, I can send them for surgery. Yes, I can slap a statin on them. 
but I'm, they're not actually getting better. It's like, we're just stabilizing everything. We're just kind of keeping everything calm. And I think for myself, having a child with life-threatening food allergies shifted everything. That changed everything. You know, I, I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't protect him enough. And the more I read and the more I understood, and, and quite frankly, the more I thought about nutrition being the basis for all of our health or disease, the harder it became to go to work and write those scripts. Because when I was in the hospital and I was in clinic, I was towing the party line. It was all evidence-based medicine. I worked for a very dynamic cardiology practice. And most of my colleagues were pretty supportive. They thought I was the cute NP that was focused on nutrition because I always tried to talk to my patients about lifestyle medicine. But as you can imagine, when I'm dealing with the sickest hospital follow-ups, you know, just making sure they can breathe, poop, pee, and like move is important. And there was never enough time to really talk to them. Like, we need to focus on sleep. Let's clean up your nutrition. I mean, there there was almost a hesitation on on the part of the patient that they were just like, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. Just give me the pill. And I would try just about any angle. I could get, I, and, and I started getting to a point when I got into my late thirties, early forties, where some of my patients were younger than me. And I would say, how old are your children? I was always looking for an angle to encourage them to take better care of themselves. And so for me, I, I just, out of utter frustration, got to a point when it was evident to me that there were so many limitations on my time. And I didn't want to compromise the quality of care I was providing because I took, I still take great pride in being an excellent, smart, astute nurse practitioner, but I just felt, and and I know this sounds perhaps naive, and I'm married to an engineer finance guy. I literally got out of bed one morning and said, I can't do this anymore. And he was like, what? And without a business plan, I gave my notice at work and I just leaped. And I was very fortunate that very quickly... I was able to, uh, you know, create programs, and there were a lot of women who wanted to come to me and talk about exactly all the things I talk about now. But I think on a lot of levels, it is very hard for many. I don't want to use the word woke, but I'm going to use the word woke healthcare providers who are seeing that there are limitations with our current medical model to prevention and chronic disease management because we just aren't given the tools in our training. We either have to go back and get more training, or we have to do a lot of education beyond where we started from to be able to provide the degree of breadth and experience to, you know, what uh, we oftentimes feel is the most important, you know, that lifestyle piece. I think for so many of us that are in this space, whether it's a low carb ketogenic lifestyle, lifestyle medicine, so many of us recognize that is oftentimes the most important thing we should be teaching our patients, but that's not what they're conditioned to believe. They want the pill. (laughs) In fact, I had younger patients that were like, I'm not going to stop smoking. I'm not going to get physically active. I'm not going to change my diet. So just give me the pill, Cynthia. And I, of course, would oblige and I would, you know, document what we had talked about. Uh, but we have really conditioned our patients for pharmaceutical agents as opposed to lifestyle medicine. And I want to just add that it is much harder for a patient to change their lifestyle. And I wish I could snap my fingers and make it easy. But lifestyle changes are hard and they're not meant to be easy. But we are always, I think we as a culture always looking for a quick fix. And so you can appreciate why sometimes that, you know, it may be when someone gets ill or they have a family member that gets sick, or there's some powerful impetus that all of a sudden they want to change. And we're always supportive of that, but there are definitely limitations to when I was practicing. And that was an endless source of frustration. Phil, do you mind? I want to ask a couple of questions that actually are going to look back, Cynthia, in, Mm -hmm. in your career. And I have this sense that there's an awful lot of people out there like me, not medical professionals, who have a perception of what being a medical professional is that is entirely wrong. I'm, I'm thinking of Brian Linskis, um, who we talked to three weeks ago. I mean, that was just a kind of thing. So is that okay if I... You okay with if I just kind of drill down into that with Cynthia? Yeah, I think Absolutely. it would be great. You know, I, I, over the past few weeks, Cynthia, we've had Brian Lenskis and we've had William Davis, and uh, you know, we we seem to pe- keep coming across this story of you know the system is broken and we need to get out of the system. And so I think uh, you know, exploring your perspective on that a little bit would be great. So let's just just give us a feel for a day in the life of Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner, 
back in the day. Yeah. Just well, <laughs> what was a typical day for you? Um, well, I can tell you that at the time my husband did a lot of international travel and so my kids were younger. And so it was oftentimes me scurrying to get them on the bus. I'd get in my car, I'd drive to the hospital. I would start seeing patients. Now, were you, uh, were you hospital-based or did you have an office and then you had rounds? I did both. I did both. Um, although I started transitioning more to outpatient because it was more predictable. I could get out on time if I needed to grab my kids. And that's really what it, that's what it came down to. And actually, to be completely fair, I am an adrenaline junkie. I do like sick patients, but I was much more autonomous in the clinic than I was in the hospital. Because in the hospital, my doc was always around. If I had a problem, I had someone to bounce ideas off of. In clinic, you screw up. I mean, you send someone home. That's a problem. So uh, more often than not, I would start rounding in the ICU. Uh, you know, I was on the floor usually by 7.30, 7.45, ICU, ER, consults. Then you would start rounding. And I was there to put out fires. And so, you know, my doc might have been in the cath lab. My doc could have been- What's your specialty? Cardiology. Okay. Um, and so again, that, that gravitating towards sicker patient, medically, very medically complex. And the practice I work for allowed the NPs to have a lot of autonomy. We did have a tremendous amount of autonomy. If I needed to call a chopper, if I need to arrange for surgery, I mean, I could do all of those things. And the one thing I, I oftentimes tell people is that when you work in more urgent, acute care medicine, you can't afford to screw up. I mean, you could be rounding and someone two, two doors down, they call a code and you're there, you're running a code, you're resuscitating a patient, you're calling the ICU. I mean, there's just a, a tremendous amount of um, pressure to make sure that you're 150% in all the time. And, you know, for me, I'm incredibly conscientious, almost to the point of being a little OCD. And generally, you know, I could manage the stress that I was experiencing day to day. And I loved what I did. Uh, I love cardiology, I love everything about the heart. Uh, I find it utterly fascinating, but I was starting to see several things that were happening. One, almost all of the, you know, specialty practices. Now in the hospital, the real hardcore specialties are usually cardiology, nephrology, so kidney, pulmonary, pulmonary critical care. And those three specialties tend to eat, interweave all the time. And for me, when I saw those specialties, I generally knew we were all kind of managing similar issues, but I always felt very confident. But what I was hearing from all of my physician colleagues was how, how frustrated they were. They were being forced to see more patients. They weren't able to spend as much time with their patients as they wanted to, because in the back of their mind, they had to see X number of patients per day to be profitable. Nurses felt overworked, overstressed. Their... Um, you know, the, the volume of patients they were responsible for, even in more critical care areas were going up. Everyone just felt constrained. And it was stress that all of us were experiencing. And I don't think most people go into healthcare without really genuinely wanting to serve others. So you can imagine something that you, that you initially gravitated towards because you wanted to help others, you suddenly feel constrained by. And so I felt the one thing I started expand on that word constrained by constrained. There's a Um, lot, there's a lot contained there. Yeah. I mean, you're frustrated because you can't deliver the kind of care you want. You're frustrated because you have a bean counter over your shoulder telling you that you didn't use the right CPT code or the right code for what you were doing. Cause you have to create, you're doing billing all day long. Like you're keeping track of how acutely sick was this patient that you rounded on? How much time did you spend on this consult? How, you know, it's like every minute of the day you were accounting for what you are doing based on acuity and you'd have bean counters over your shoulder or you didn't document this one, you know, metric or you didn't check off aspirin for your cardiovascular patient. I'm like, what? Um, you know, you'd have technical issues. You know, I started in medicine in the 1990s, way before electronic medical records, and all of a sudden, you know, the wave of EMRs, electronic medical records came about. And, and there were a lot of benefits to that. But you get the call from the bean counter telling that you didn't check off one box and they wouldn't process an order. And you'd have to stop what you were doing to go to a computer to fix the one bean counter request to go back to what you were doing. Um, and I, I felt like in a lot of levels, um, because I had been trained in emergency medicine, and because I was always given a lot of autonomy as a nurse and a nurse practitioner, that I expected the team that I worked with to have the same concerns, critical care, thinking, et cetera. 
And I just started to see that some of the people that were going into, and, and it could be any designation after their names, could be a respiratory therapist. I mean, it could be anybody that people were getting so bogged down in all the extra work that they had to do that some people just stopped caring. Yeah. And that was disheartening to me, really disheartening that there was almost like this hard shell that people would develop in response to the added pressures that they were experiencing so much so that they were no longer really being effective in their job role. Like, yes, they were a, a physician or a nurse or a respiratory therapist, but they weren't really connecting with their patients. And so that to me was sad to see as well, because I, I, I would imagine that when those people or those individuals started in their careers, they felt very differently. And more often than not, the joke was, um, and Phil, I don't know if this is what you've heard from other colleagues, who's going to take care of us when we get old? Because so many people were leaving clinical medicine. And, and again, I go back to in the hospital, the people that are like dealing with the sickest patients other than surgeons, kidney, pulmonary, cardiology. And I'm like, some of the people I worked with were so smart. I'm like, we don't want to lose these people to other occupations. This has a profound net impact on all of us. And unfortunately, my greatest concern, now I have teenagers, neither of them want to go into medicine. None. Neither of them want to do that. And largely because they're like, mom, we see how hard you worked. And we know how hard we have a lot of physicians in our family. And so the degree of physician dissatisfaction, nurse, NP, add in any title in the medical community right now, people feel like they're fighting an uphill battle. And, you know, so many of my colleagues during the beginning of the pandemic went and, uh, you know, went to New York City. A lot of my anesthesiologist friends, nurse anesthetist friends. And, you know, in many ways, I think the pandemic has really made it even harder for healthcare professionals to feel valued and appreciated. And what I'm hearing from my colleagues scares me, quite frankly, because I don't know what kind of care we're going to have as we get older, given the fact that I have colleagues that are leaving in droves, like my gastroenterologist, who's brilliant. She was like a Hopkins trained gastroenterologist. She was tough as nails. And she said to me after a year and a half being in the pandemic, she said, Cynthia, my husband and I talked. And even though she's in her 50s, she's like, we just decided enough is enough. Like I'm leaving medicine. And I said, you can't replace people like that. So, you know, when I, when I think about on the ground things that are hard to discuss with people that perhaps don't understand the amount of pressure that healthcare providers are under on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis, uh, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because I think this is the first time I've really talked about that in probably four or five years, but I'm so glad that I am because I hope that people understand that all of these healthcare providers really want to do what's best for our patients. We're just so constrained within the current system. And we really want, we don't want it to be that we're outliers, that, you know, when we look at who's metabolically flexible, who's healthy, you are becoming an outlier. Most Americans are so incredibly metabolically unhealthy and that's not getting better. And so I think on a lot of levels, the frustration that so many of us are experiencing, Brian, Phil, I mean, so many people that I know um, within the healthcare community is a large byproduct of the realization that the current model is not sustainable. The other piece is, you know, if you're healthy and you're in this model, your insurance premiums just continue to jack up even if you see the doctor once a year or an MP once a year. I mean, I'm in a super healthy family. We only go to the doctor when it's necessary. And my husband was telling us what our premiums are every month. And I said, that's a direct reflection of how unhealthy the general population is. Yeah, you know, there one are of so the, many places I want to go with that. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Phil. Yeah, one of the biggest concerns I have around the future of medicine, and you sort of touched on this, is that the system is selecting out uh, independent thought. It is actively discouraging independent thought, you know, and we see it starting now in in medical school and the whole educational mm-hmm. system uh, for for practitioners of all sorts um, that, you know, you need to stay within the guidelines. You need to, you know, f- be checking all the boxes and anyone who starts to, you know, say, well, this isn't working quite right for this patient and we need to start thinking differently about this, um, you know, can actually get, uh, you know, 
punished for it, discouraged uh, for for uh, thinking like that. So, you know, not only do I share your concerns about just having enough practitioners to take care of people moving forward, I really get concerned about, you know, what is the quality of care that those people are going to be able to deliver when they're not allowed to question and think about things? Well, I know even uh, over the last two years, my team, um, I've told them we don't talk about the pandemic. We don't talk about vaccines. We don't talk about the virus, largely because I don't want the blowback. And I have colleagues that have said to me, if I see a traditionally trained provider speaking out against X, Y, or Z, I will report them to the Board of Medicine. And when my colleagues said this to me, I shuddered. I shuddered. I thought, oh my gosh, we're in a, we're being censured. Like as a licensed healthcare professional, and I'm still fully licensed. You are not allowed to publicly express a belief that falls outside of the accepted narrative. And I, and I think it's, it's very tricky on social media as one example. I've had people in my DMS that have said, I know you won't talk about it outside the context of this conversation. What are your thoughts? And I always say, I'm only comfortable sharing what I have chosen for myself and my family. That's the, I'm not giving any medical advice or guidance as much as I would love to be able to do that. I'm just not in a position where I can do that because I'm just not willing to get the blowback. And I think it's so unfortunate. You know, I, I think not only was I raised by parents who encouraged me to question everything, question I was trained at a university that encouraged us as nurses to question everything. And now I'm in a situation where I can't verbally question the way I want to in a thoughtful manner. I was even told recently by a a friend of mine who's a physician who has been, you know, on a lot of news outlets talking about the past two years. And he and I politely disagreed to disagree, which was fine. But he was saying, don't, he's like, you probably don't want to talk about that on social media. And I was like, oh, I know not to, because I'm, I'm genuinely concerned. And it's also not on brand. This is not what I talk about. I'd rather talk about diabetes <laughs> and metabolic flexibility. I, I, I seem to navigate a whole lot easier talking about other subjects. But well, we I, see- I personally am, I'm sorry, Phil, I, I, I apologize for dragging us down that path. But I'm, I've become more and more aware of how many people there are who, who care about their health and yet are utterly ignorant about why what their healthcare professional tells them to do doesn't work. And so I, I feel like one of the things that we're, we're being able to do on this show is educate people not just about metabolic health, but about why if you're dependent on on an allopathic healthcare provider to give you to to put you on the path to health you're doomed to be disappointed so all right yeah and, and you know the the problem becomes you know what Cynthia and I you know and many others deal with every day is that you know this extends to all areas so it's certainly not limited to the pandemic and when you start talking about things like maybe you know, not eating all day long might be good for your health. Uh, You know, maybe cholesterol isn't the one and only thing that we should be worried about around heart disease. Um, And, you know, we start to see that blowback. Uh, And I'm sure Cynthia has experienced it uh, as well when you start to talk about these alternative ideas around nutrition and health. Well, and I've even had people tell me that I'm propagating eating disorders that I don't understand what it's like to have um, an unhealthy relationship with food. And I always think, gosh, I've taken care of patients for so many years. And as a middle-aged woman, for the first time in my adult life, I struggled with, you know, the hormonal flux of perimenopause. And so I take such great offense when people are so triggered when I'm really just trying to provide education and inspiration for people to, you know, move the lever. Like maybe you aren't ready to fast, but dang, you should, you should not eat for 12 hours a day. Like really that should be the gold standard. Maybe not my teenagers because they seem to have a voluminous appetite 24 seven, but for all adults, we should not be eating so often. Like my mom is Italian. And I always tell people like my mom was like well beyond her years in terms of we ate organ meats as much as we didn't like it. My mom didn't allow us to snack. We had vegetables with every meal. My mom cooked everything from scratch. And so 
for me, we've gotten so off base from, you know, instilling in our children or instilling in, in as a virtue, learning how to cook for ourselves, not eating as often, like things that are so benign and they're so much more aligned with, you know, how as a species we've evolved as human beings that to me, you know, a lot of when people get triggered, it's really a reflection of them and things that they're not, they're not ready to do the work on. Well, let's, let's follow up on this a little bit. What does, you used a, a phrase that I'd like you to expand on. What does metabolic flexibility have to do with being healthy? Why is a trained allopathic nurse practitioner talking about metabolic flexibility? And what's all this stuff about fasting? You're a nurse. Why, you know, stay in your lane, Cynthia. Yep. Help us understand here. Yeah, no, no. I, in fact, I was told recently by a registered dietitian that I had no business giving nutrition information to my patients. And I said, that's BS. Uh, so when we talk about metabolic flexibility, what we're really talking about is our bodies being aligned with utilizing either carbohydrates or fats as a fuel source. What's happened in our kind of over harried, um, highly processed, hyper palatable food lives is that we've been conditioned that we need to eat frequently to stoke our metabolism. The breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And really what we've done to our patients is that we have created so much blood sugar dysregulation and insulin resistance by encouraging them to eat a heart healthy whole grain diet and very little protein and too many of the wrong types of fats and way too many carbohydrates and too much meal frequency so when I talk about metabolic flexibility, it's it's about getting back to a position where you have normal blood pressure, where you don't have insulin resistance. By eating less often, you're going to allow your body to tap into stored fat. And even if you're thin, you have plenty of stored fat in your body to utilize as a fuel substrate. But most people here in the United States and most westernized countries eat so frequently that your body never has an opportunity to burn through the stored carbohydrates or glycogen. And so what ends up happening is that I was, I always give the example, my father likes to top off the gas tank. So, you know, he gets to a a three quarters of a tank and wants to fill it up again. Well, it's the same premise. You know, people more often than not have have lost the concept of what true intrinsic hunger feels like. They just know at eight o'clock, they ate breakfast. They have a snack at 10, they lunch at 12, they have a snack midday and then they eat dinner. And then they might eat again in the evening. And if you, you look at the research of Sach and Panda, He had a research article that came out in 2021 talking about meal frequency. People are eating anywhere from six to 10 times a day. And that never gives your body an opportunity to keep its insulin levels lower to tap into those fat stores. So when I talk about metrics related to metabolic flexibility, it's some of the ones that Phil talks about blood pressure, waist circumference, HDL, triglycerides, um, you know, fasting glucose. And I always say fasting insulin should be one of the first things that we're checking on our patients And these are metrics that are covered by insurance. They're not woo-woo. They're not integrative medicine or functional medicine. These are straightforward labs or metrics that you yourself can monitor and follow, but we're not doing a very good job. You know, metabolic syndrome has been around for a long time, but I actually was reading a paper today that was talking about that, you know, uh, visceral adiposity should be like the first marker that we're really focusing on. And do we talk to our patients, you know, the apple-shaped patients where they have visceral fat around their, their, you know, major organs, that's really concerning. It's very different than a woman being frustrated with, you know, adipose tissue around her hips or her thighs. That's much, much different. That's subcutaneous tissue. So I remind people that the whole concept of metabolic flexibility is how we've been able to get, you know, from dating back to biblical times till now, because our bodies were accustomed to going through periods of feasting and fasting. Uh, And so now we're just overeating all the time and, and our bodies are really getting, you know, more and more, we are becoming a a less healthy population. Well, that's one of the things that that Phil hammers on. I, I, 88%, that's the number that, that 88.2% from that UNC Chapel Hill study from 2018, that was pre pandemic. And if you look at the research, I just presented in Salt Lake, if you look at the research, I mean, people have gained anywhere from 15 to 50 pounds. And a lot of it's mediated by alcohol use and sleep. So that number is probably higher. It's probably low 90s. So you really are an outlier if you're metabolically flexible now, but that doesn't have to be our destiny. So you are, you, you've gone a different direction. Mm -hmm. 
you're still caring for for patients. You're mm-hmm. still providing healthcare guidance. You're still providing the things that we think of an allopathic uh, healthcare provider able to do. But your practice is different. How has it changed? Well, um, I now see myself as a purveyor of a different level of care. So I more often than not, I'm partnering with uh, physicians and other advanced practice nurses that they do, they take care of the big stuff, but I'm very specialized. I'm very focused on women and middle age. So perimenopause and menopause, because we, as a, as a medical, um, medically focused group, we focus on women with contraception, pregnancy, postpartum, and then it's like women go off to pasture. And to me, in many ways, women need care at that stage of their lives. They spend 40% of their lives in menopause. So for me, I develop programs and, and one-on-one work uh, with patients and then you know went on to do a lot of speaking because I, I felt like women of this age group were really forgotten about. And so it was a much-needed service to women uh, and now I get to really talk about things all day long, talking about lifestyle peace and gut health and hormones. And, and if someone has an issue that crops up that's beyond what I want to deal with, I send it back to their internist or their GYN. And it's been a beautiful relationship because the allopathic trained people don't have the time to do that kind of work. And I always feel like if, if someone needs something urgently, emergently, et cetera, it's like those days of me having to worry about emergencies are long behind me. But I do provide a significant level of care that I wish I had been able to do before, but now I have the flexibility to be able to do so. So why do you have that flexibility? Uh, well, I mean, there's a couple different things. I mean, when I left clinical medicine, I had a spouse who was supportive but cautious. And so he gave me a bit of time to you know, start creating. And it was like within a year, I was profitable. So group programs, one-on-one work. Uh, a podcast, sponsorships, and things that have been able to fill in the gaps, you know, a, a book deal, all that have kind of come out of, you know, public speaking things that I've done. So the way I look at it is I get to impact women at a whole other level, and I can talk to more people. So to me, it's it's a blessing of all blessings is that my desire to leave clinical medicine was to be able to help more people. Now I am able to do that. And I do it on my terms. Like I, I would be very hard for me six years out of my traditional, you know, kind of job that I had before to ever go back. Like during the the pandemic, at the peak of the pandemic, I had uh, my old practice called me, the hospitals called me. They were like, you have a very specific skill set. You could run the, you could be in the ICU helping to manage patients. And I said, you know, I, I don't think that's what I want to do anymore. Um, I'm much more content coming downstairs in my pajamas and getting in a full work day and, and doing other things. So uh, I'm very blessed. I, I mean, I, I am grateful every day that I have the opportunity to do this, but I do get to impact more people now than I ever did before. And, and I'm an introvert, which people are always surprised to hear. Um, I am not someone who, uh, you know, I did the I did the TEDx talks just to challenge myself. I was like, okay, what's really scary to get up in a big room full of people and execute a talk and commit it to memory? That was pretty scary, which makes me laugh now. But the point being is that. I feel very fortunate that as a nurse and a nurse practitioner that I'm in a community now where I feel that a lot of the people that, that Phil and I interact with, we're, we're in a wonderfully supportive environment where we're able to support one another um, and do it in a way that we all have an understanding of, of what everyone is, is struggling with right now. But the really interesting thing is that it seems like so many of my peers are, are gaining the courage to be able to you know stand up in the face of what is not working and try to be, you know, a remedy for change. I mean, that's the really powerful thing. The one thing that I found interesting was that my alma mater reached out and wanted me to, I did some lectures. They asked me if I was willing to, you know, teach a class in the fall because they said, we want more nurses to be able to do what you're doing. And so I, I look at it as we're inspiring a whole generation of other healthcare professionals to, not feel like you're so constrained in a box that you do have options that your your message is really valued and appreciated and that we can impact change like we don't have to feel like I, I always felt like I was almost like a canary in a cage I kept squawking I was like trying to explain like the system is broken this is not working and now I get an opportunity to help more people and that that is incredibly gratifying yeah the uh, you know the community thing I think is a uh, big uh, part of this because, uh, you know, you and I have 
started going to different types of medical meetings now. I know you were at the the Keto Salt Lake and A4M recently. I was just out at the Metabolic Health Summit. And um, it is um, very enlightening, very encouraging uh, to see that community that is building. And, you know, we are all on the same mission and we are all helping each other. And the traditional medical conferences that I'm sure you went to, just like me, uh, are oftentimes not like that. And they're very much about, you know, promoting yourself and competing and, and, uh, you know, and then it would just be the same people up there giving the same message all the time. Uh, so I, I have certainly found, uh, I would say renewed vigor for going to meetings and, uh, interactions like that. Well, and it's really neat to meet some of these people. Like I got to meet Dave Feldman and Brian Lenskis out in Keto Salt Lake and my husband was with me. So he had heard about these characters and got to meet them in person and got to meet Brian's wife and so many other really lovely people. And he said to me, and now I, now I understand, I get it. I really get it because obviously leaving clinical medicine was a really hard decision for me. I mean, I, I think I cried every day that I worked for like two weeks because many of these physicians and these nurses had become such close friends. But I realized that I, I was so, um, you know, strangled by the circumstances I was in that I couldn't really practice the way that I wanted to. So to me, to be around people that are like-minded and supportive, incredibly supportive is really nice because in many ways, uh, initially they thought I was crazy. And I say they, my, my fellow nurses and nurse practitioners, but now they're like, I want to do what you're doing. Yeah. So I feel in a lot of ways you're inspiring other surgeons and doctors and and I'm certainly inspiring nurses to to recognize like we, we're really capable of doing incredible things. We can use our training in different ways. It doesn't have to be in that kind of, you have to practice in a hospital or in an office or in a surgical suite when there's so many other ways that you can utilize your training that will help benefit more patients. I want to ask an uncomfortable question of both of okay. you. Uh, uh, Brian Linskis said the same thing I've heard you say. He, he, and I don't remember if he gave the a ratio, but he'd said he'd have patients come through the office and he'd try to talk to them about metabolic health and they'd kind of roll their eyes and say, just give me the pill, doc. And he realized when he left that kind of practice those people didn't care whether he was prescribing the pill to them or somebody else was prescribing the pill to them because the only thing they were interested in was give me the pill. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there was a small number of patients who wanted what he had to give. And those are the ones who went with him. So my question, I I guess it's the Pareto principle. Um, You know, 80% of our problems come from 20% of our customers. 80% of the productivity comes from 20% of the producers and on and on and on. And I don't want you to throw anybody under the bus, bus, but there are patients. There's, there's some percentage of patients who just, who are just aren't willing to do the work to get well. Mm-hmm. They want symptom mediate uh, remediation. Do you see the same type of thing in the healthcare professionals that you've worked with? Is there just some percentage that there's nothing that's going to happen that's going to get them off of this treadmill because they're perfectly happy to be on it? Well, I, I think there's a few things. So uh, I, I was privy to starting in medicine when it was still very, a very profitable, uh, occupation to be in. Now it's, it's like specific specialties are largely insulated from a lot of what my colleagues were dealing with. But when I started in clinical medicine, it wasn't unusual to see a cardiologist making 500 to $750,000 a year. That wasn't what it was when I was leaving. And so I think there's a degree of cognitive dissonance about, you know, comfort for people leaving, you know, if they, they've, I I lived in a very affluent part of the United States and uh, a lot of the physicians lived in the most affluent cities around where we worked, where, you know, a mortgage could be two or $3 million. And I was thinking, God, I don't know how they're affording that. Um, And so I think that sometimes people get, uh, get accustomed to a certain kind of lifestyle and, and therefore they, they're, they don't have the option to be able to leave their circumstances. So I think there's some of that and I want to be sensitive to that. Um, I, I think some of it's just cognitive dissonance. People just don't want to see what is in front of them. 
And I'm of the belief system that once I saw, I could not unsee. And then it, it, it was, it just, it was almost like an itch that couldn't get, I couldn't scratch the itch enough. It just persisted until I moved. I had to do something. So I think there's a variety of different things. I, I would say more often than not now, what I hear from my colleagues, it's just, it's just potentiated. Like now people are really unhappy. Um, and this is both nurses, NPs, other advanced practice nurses, physicians, et cetera. The people are really fed up, you know, in the six years since, I've been out of like a, a traditional environment. Um, everyone's waking up. My friends are waking up. Um, many of them are just trying to, you know, squeak through till they maybe they've got a metric of how much money they have to have in the bank. Um, a lot of people are just getting by. Like I have one colleague who's a nurse anesthetist, and her way of getting around a lot of this is that she started doing travel nursing, which she really loves actually, but allows her to see what's going on in different hospitals in different parts of the country. And it's not unique to any one geographic location. In fact, uh, you know, if, if anyone's been living in a box the last couple of years, you know, with the book Dope Sick and, you know, Hulu has a, a series about Dope Sick, but I was watching, um, I was watching a special on ABC about fentanyl. And for anyone that's not familiar, fentanyl is a synthetic narcotic. It's incredibly powerful. In fact, when I had my appendix out. Um, they gave me too much fentanyl and had to give me a couple rounds of Narcan to wake me up. But that, but I think the point of what I'm trying to, to say is that there've been so many, uh, there's been so many different variables that have impacted people's quality of life as a healthcare provider over the last 20 years that I think there are some people who feel like they're pill pushers. I think there are some people who are just frustrated. They just, they're biding time. Like I, I had a big birthday last year and I can tell you, I have colleagues they are like, I just want to work five or 10 more years and then I'm out. And that's their mentality. I want to get my kids through college, then I'm out. And that's unfortunate because you can't replace the knowledge of a, a well-seasoned physician or a nurse or a nurse practitioner with you know five newbies. It takes a long time for people to accrue the confidence and the skill set to be really, really good at what they're doing. Yeah, the uh, the not being able to unsee what you've seen, um, you know, I think is one of the cruxes that I see because, it, you know, you hear that from almost all the physicians and the practitioners, you know, that are kind of in the spaces that we are now. Um, but you realize that a lot of people, when they are faced with a sort of ground shaking, uh, you know, realization, just say, oh, well, that just can't be true. Uh, and they just ignore it and, and put their head in their in the sand. And again, you know, I get back to the, the whole healthcare system has evolved to such a point that, you know, thinking outside the box and questioning these basic assumptions um, is just not allowed. It's just not encouraged. And so, you know, people who have invested their entire lives, you know, most of the people who go into medicine, um, you know, that's what they always wanted to do. And they start down the path and you just can't, you know, and you're 20, you know, years into your career. And it's hard to think about, you know, that you might be able to construct a life in some other way. Um, and even staying within medicine, but doing it different than the way that, you know, you've already always done it uh, can be a, a tough, uh, tough thing for people to see. Well, and it's funny, even my father still talks about, my father still to this day keeps saying, I can't believe you got the education you got and you still left. And I said, dad, I know you don't understand this, but once you see, you cannot unsee. I said, you know, I would not have been, I wouldn't be who I am. The, I, you raised me to be a certain kind of person. I wouldn't be the daughter that you raised if I just sat back and sat there passively and didn't do anything. So... Well, I want to I want to ask about uh, your practice now in particular. Mm -hmm. um, I am not a woman or menopausal, so these are <laughs> things that um, my interest in it uh, is relational rather than personal. Um, talk about I, I I guess the I'm looking at this uh, poster or book or whatever that's on the on the credenza behind you, fasting transformation. Uh, what does fasting have to do with caring for perimenopausal and menopausal females? So this is a good story. So uh, six years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago, I you know hit the wall of perimenopause. And for anyone that's listening, if you're not familiar with that term, 
it's anywhere from five to 15 years prior to menopause. And, and I was any doing all man the- who's married to a woman. Yes. Yes. Guys. Oh, you want yeah, to listen no. to this one. You want no. to listen to this one, maybe more than your wife wants to. Yeah, okay. no, All no. Right, I ahead. mean, for the for the first time in my adult life, I you know had gained five to ten pounds seemingly overnight. I couldn't sleep. I was exhausted all the time, and you know I had a very demanding job. I had a husband who did a lot of international travel. I had young kids. I was probably not eating enough food during my my day to day existence because I was taking care of these sick as stink people, and you know over time. Uh, intermittent fasting just kind of came to me as potentially a strategy I could utilize to get my health back in line. The irony being the strategy that I use to get myself back on track is something that literally bled into all the work I was doing. Like with every person I worked with one-on-one and every person I worked with in a group program, or anytime I got on a podcast, I would talk about intermittent fasting. Of course, not realizing that that was a foreshadowing to, to several years later, And so, you know, for me, for a lot of women in particular who are struggling with weight loss resistance, all of a sudden the game changes in perimenopause. The things that used to work in your 20s and 30s don't work anymore. You don't sleep as well. Your body isn't as stress resistant as it once was. Foods that used to not bother you suddenly do. And so you have to change what you're doing. And for a lot of people, they would rather, um, they would much rather try to make lifestyle adjustments and live a fervent and, you know, inspiring middle-aged life. And then you got to call people who, you know, they're rigidly dogmatic and they don't want to give up their alcohol and they don't want to change their over-exercising. And so fasting gave me back my vitality. And that's why I'm so passionate at talking about it. Now, the irony is for full disclosure, when I did my first TEDx, it was about perimenopause, no surprise, right? Uh, you know, when I was offered my second, I was planning on talking, having a gender neutral discussion, but it was the organizers that asked me to do a gender slanted discussion. And so voila, that is now what I'm known for is talking about women and intermittent fasting. But up until that point, I talked to men and women about it all the time. Uh, but in a lot of ways, when you think about fasting as a strategy, it's very aligned with ancestral health perspectives. You know, we went through food scarcity. If our bodies weren't able to adapt to having periods of food scarcity, we wouldn't have survived as a species. So when people send me DMs and and tell me that I'm advocating for starvation or I'm advocating for eating disorders, um, it really demonstrates to me that they really don't understand what intermittent fasting is. But to me, it's a really powerful tool that both men and women can utilize and certainly, you know, there are people who shouldn't do it, but, uh, you know, I'm pretty vocal about those that should exclude it from their, their lifestyle. But more often than not, I mean, even if you just do 12 hours of digestive rest, you are doing tremendous benefit for your health. And we just don't talk enough about that. We just keep, you know, it's like this, you know, it's like on autopilot. We just keep saying fat is bad. Sugar's not bad. Eat all these heart healthy grains, you know, don't eat enough protein eat the wrong types of fats, not realizing it's just make us making us more obese and more sick. So intermittent fasting, quick definition for us. Mm-hmm. Eating less often, it is that easy. Eating less often. And that, you know, there's so much flexibility to when you choose to eat, when you choose to fast. Um, some people like to make it complicated and I remind them all the time, intermittent fasting should not be complicated. We make it complicated because we overthink it. (laughs) So, uh, you know, eating less often is really the way to think about it. And it could look very different for each one of us. We all have flexibility about when we fast, how long we fast, how short we fast. Um, Women obviously have the confounding variable of menstrual cycles. And so women that are still getting a menstrual cycle need to fast at certain times during their cycle. And this is the only time you'll ever hear me utter this phrase, menopausal women and men have less limitations on fasting than younger women do. And so that's the only time you'll make, I'll make that comparison, say men and women, postmenopausal women and men are more aligned with more stable hormones. I'm just going to say stable as in stable, quote unquote, stable. So does that mean every day? Uh, Here's, I actually had a a thought that occurred to me. Um, And I've, I've had this question in my mind for 40 years, maybe (laughs) seriously, um, for, for reasons that don't matter. When I was a freshman in college, 
right back after Jesus was born, um, I <laughs> I decided to fast 24 hours a day once a week. And I did that for, I think, my entire freshman year. So for like 36 weeks, I ate six days a week and fasted the seventh. And then I, I let it go. Um, and th- I've wondered if that practice did something for me at the time that also bore long-term fruit. And in, in the same way that that if a, a 17 or 18-year-old or 19-year-old boy gets serious about weightlifting and does weight training and, and, and is g- committed to it for a while, it also will bear long-term fruit, fruit that lasts for decades. Is there? Do you have any insight on that? I'm not that I'm advocating that people do that, but I've wondered because I've never... I know I've never had an had a an adversarial relationship with food at least as long as I can remember, and I've wondered if it goes back to that. I don't know. Anyone, Bueller? Sorry, you were you were breaking up. I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss a nugget of what you were trying to share. <laughs> um, yes, I mean I do think that you know, even a 24 hour fast a week has benefits. Um, For a lot of my patients who are not ready to do daily fasting, sometimes we'll just have them do two 24 hour fasts a week. And that can be very beneficial. And and, and if you look at the the technical, like a five, two, five slash two, in some instances, a five, two is five days a week of your normal eating pattern, two days a week of fasting versus five days a week of your normal eating pattern, and then two subcaloric days, but I don't believe in counting calories. That's not my focus. But for men, it's under like 600 calories for one meal out of the day and for women less than 500. But I do think that having periods where you're not eating, you know, longer periods um, can for many people help with cravings. Um, it can certainly help with boosting certain biomarkers like growth hormone, et cetera. It in, invokes, you know, deeper levels of autophagy, which is the waste and recycling process in the body. So I do think that there can be benefits to doing that. And, and certainly men, uh, because they're not constrained by a menstrual cycle and the fluctuations of, you know, estrogen to progesterone and testosterone generally have a long, have, generally seem to have an easier time implementing, you know, a 24 hour period of not eating every week. Um, and we can talk about the law of diminishing returns. I know Ted Naiman's very big on talking about fasting and, and thin people and not doing too long a fast, which I, I do agree with uh, to some extent. How about you, Phil? What do you think? Yeah, you know, I, um, it, Jack and I have talked much on the show. You know, one of the things that I always say is, you know, just eat in a way that makes you hungry less often. Um, and I do agree that, you know, inter- fasting of any sort, intermittent fasting, and it takes all the different forms that you talked about. And one of the things I love about the book is that, you know, you are not uh, dogmatic about this is the only way to do it. And you talk about the process to kind of, you know, prepare for it and make it a long-term successful uh, strategy. Uh, But I I agree, you know, that there is probably a diminishing return and it does get harder for very lean people to fast. And there may not be the reasons that they need to fast. Uh, So, um, but, uh, you know, what I do want to say about the book is that uh, although, you know, it's sort of geared towards women, I think there's a lot that men can learn from the book. Um, I learned, uh, you know, a number of things from the book and, uh, you know, you can directly help yourself. And of course, you can, you know, also be helping the women in your life um, with the uh, stuff that's in the book. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I think that uh, one of the questions that I get most frequently is, do I do really long fasts? And and the honest answer is, uh, three years ago, I spent 13 days in the hospital and almost died. And so I don't do really long fasts because I had seven days of not being able to eat followed by TPN, which for anyone that's listening, that's total parental nutrition, uh, which is probably what kept me alive. Uh, but I lost 15 pounds. And so I didn't fast for probably four or five months after that. So to me, long fast put me in a, in a kind of a negative tailspin. You know, I've done lots of work around this area, but I haven't done more than a 24 or 48 hour fast in the past three years. And I'm okay with that. I don't think that for myself personally, that it does me any benefits, but I do like doing a 24 hour fast. I probably do two of them a month. Um, I do feel like it's a way of like getting myself back on track. The irony is I'm in a house with all men 
And I say this, like my, my oldest is six feet tall. He's a football player, lacrosse player. My youngest is a competitive swimmer. And the amount of food that my kids eat is just unbelievable. So sometimes, you know, when I'm in a fasted state and they're in the kitchen for the upteenth time, I'm just like, oh, enjoy your metabolism, boys. I'm telling you, it's pretty incredible. I can just marvel at him like, wow. In in some ways, maybe you're, uh, you know, kind of in the ancestral model that you actually have to fight for food. So, you know, no, it's, sometimes it's fasting my, becomes uh, an unintentional thing. Yeah. Well, my husband, my husband, so this is the funny thing. So when I transitioned from my nurse practitioner job to my, an entrepreneur, my husband, who's an engineer, and he's very kind of like, you know, very fiscally conservative he started picking up meal prep. That was his job. That's what he wanted to do. So he does batch cooking for protein, which is really what we need two days out of the week. And last time my husband grilled a bunch of shrimp for me and he said to my boys, do not eat your mother's shrimp. Well, sure enough, I went to eat, you know, my dinner a little earlier and I opened it up. There were probably like six shrimp in this thing. And I'm like, seriously? And my husband was like, yeah, my, you know, my youngest wanted to make ceviche. And my husband was like, you know, I just, you know, but they, they'll, they'll go through four or five pounds of meat in just, I mean, like a day and a half. It's unreal. Like we call it first dinner, second dinner, like just trying to moderate. Oh, just like the hobbits. I got it. Yeah. It's insane. Ah, uh, yep. I don't miss those days. Mine are grown. <laughs> I, I had, uh, I had a bunch of, I had 10, I had eight boys between the ages of five and 13 in my pool all day Saturday and we fed them two meals. Wow. Did we go through a lot of food? I bet. Well, and I think they weren't big. These are little guys. Well, and it's funny. My husband, as smart as he is, he sometimes forgets how much the six foot tall, 16 year old eats. And he'll say, I don't understand. I said, you need to make a pound more than whatever you think you need. Like that's just the conditioning. And my son will sit down. He'll eat a massive breakfast. He'll have, and because he's 16 and because he's very active, he eats rice and he eats pasta because he can do it. And he, he had the amount of rice was the same as the amount of ground meat. I think it was ground bison. And I looked at him, I said, how do you eat that? And then go to school, I would want to take a nap. And he said, no, this is great. He just, he eats constantly. He can't eat, he can't eat enough. It's insane. <sighs> so talk so. a little bit, uh, Cynthia, about, um, you know, what... And you go into this in the book, but, you know, what to eat when you are eating, because I think that's as important as, you know, the the time spent fasting in order to, I think, make fasting sustainable and successful. You still have to focus on what you're eating when you are eating. Exactly. And so I, I think the most important macronutrient in terms of satiety and muscle protein synthesis is protein. And we're talking about animal based protein and aiming for 100 grams a day. Now, I find most women are probably getting by with 40 or 50 grams. And this is where I was saying earlier, we don't eat enough protein. What happens north of 40, that's important to mention. It's not a question of if, but when. Sarcopenia, which is muscle loss with aging. Insulin resistance starts in our muscles. So if take there's no other takeaways from this conversation. Number one, you need to strengthen. Number two, you got to need enough protein. Number three, you got to get uh, good sleep. So protein-centric meals, I always say if you're going to break a fast, it's always with some degree of protein. I don't care if it's a little bit of bone broth to start and then you have a meal later. Protein and healthy fats, and healthy fats are not seed oils. They're not canola oil, soybean, sunflower, safflower, et cetera. Protein with healthy fats like avocado, olives, um, coconut oil, whatever it is that you enjoy, butter, or you have protein with some carbohydrates. Now, I'm not anti-carb, but I remind people non-starchy carbohydrates are really should be the focus of the carbohydrates we consume. Low glycemic berries, a tart apple, et cetera, always consumed in conjunction with protein. And I find for most people, irrespective of gender, that doing it that way makes sure you're satiated. If you're satiated, your leptin and ghrelin are properly balanced. You can push, you know, push your meal away. You don't want to go back in the pantry an hour later. In well, fact, what's I had the leptin a, and ghrelin? Sorry. So there are two, yeah, there are two hormones. Um, they are involved in appetite regulation and hunger. And one of the ways that you can help support leptin, uh, which communicates between the brain and the stomach, is by eating that protein bolus. Now, obviously, there are people that are insulin resistant who may also be leptin resistant. Um, leptin uh, can help dysregulate communication, uh, the communication centers in the brain. But I remind people over time, the way that you can work through that is the protein piece. 
I find for a lot of people that if you're hitting, if you're eating enough protein, you're just too full to continue eating. You can push the plate away. And so animal-based protein is, is superior to plant-based protein. The amino acid profiles are not the same. Um, this is, uh, you know, this is a, uh, definitely one of those things that I have to do a lot of education around. There are people who feel guilty about eating, um, eating uh, meat. Uh, and I remind people that we are designed to consume animal-based protein. And a cup of quinoa is, for most of us, is going to be profoundly detrimental to our blood sugar and insulin response as opposed to sitting down and having a steak. Um, you eat a large enough steak, you're going to be full. <laughs> you eat a cup of quinoa, I can probably guarantee you're still going to be looking for more food or beans or legumes or whatever you're eating. Um, but I find that those those variables are very important. How you choose to break your fast and what you choose to plate your meals with. Because ideally, I want you to get from, let's say you break your fast at 10.30, from 10.30 until your next meal should be four or five hours later. The way to get to that point, to not have to have a snack in between, is really to be hitting those protein macros. And for a lot of people, this freaks them out. They've been told to count calories for so many years. And I remind them, if you do nothing else, I want you to measure your protein so you have a sense of what 30, 40, 50 grams of protein in a meal looks like. And I want you to you know, track your carbohydrates and not tracking net carbs. That's cheating. You want to track total carbs to keep yourself honest. I always say net carbs is a byproduct of the processed food industry because they want you to eat more of their crap. <laughs> so if you follow those principles you generally will do pretty well. And it, there is a retraining. I always say there's a retraining, reframing. You know, people think they're going to die if they don't have bread and pasta. And I remind them there are so many substitutions. Um, one of my big sayings is if you can't moderate, you eliminate. So there's certain foods I don't have in my house. I don't care how much my kids want them. They're foods that, I, you know, I can't moderate like gluten-free cookies. So we never have them in the house. But I do like dark chocolate and I have a little bit every day because I can moderate. But if yeah, you know your chocolate is the hill upon which I will die. Yes. I told yeah, my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I told my kids that I have a little bit every day, probably with some salt and macadamia nuts, and that makes me very happy. But I think it's important for people to also understand the concept of good, better, best, you know, when we're talking about food. So um, you know, Phil mentioned he was just recently traveling. I was certainly doing a lot of traveling. Uh, when I do a lot of business travel, I do longer fast until I can get to where I want to eat. Um but when you're in a pinch, you can get a naked burger. I can't tell you what country, city I'm in. I can almost always get a naked burger on a lettuce wrap and I do just fine. Or I just get a big steak. <laughs> if I'm in a city, I'm like, I can have my big steak and have my broccoli and I do really well. But I think it's important for people to understand that uh, you know, we don't live a life of deprivation. We've just learned to retrain our thought processes and to reframe a lot of our thoughts. Like I tell my kids all the time that I have traveled all over the world and I have rarely been in a circumstance where I can't get something that's aligned with my nutritional paradigms. I do, Phil, I'm curious to know if you do. I do travel with certain foods, like just in case uh, you know, I get stuck in a layover. I always have olives, like prepackaged olives. I always have beef jerky and I generally have salted macadamia nuts. And if I have those things with me, I can my husband knows. I mean, worst comes to worst, if I'm in a situation where I can't get something to eat. I'll do, I'll be just fine. I just fast longer or I eat one of those things and I do just fine. Yeah. You know, I certainly, uh, I basically use fasting as my emergency backup plan. You know, mm -hmm. if I'm in some travel situation where I'm stuck, then I'm just yeah. going to fast for a little longer. And, and, you know, knowing that you can do that, uh, it, I find is very empowering. You know, one of the, one of the, uh, I think things that fasting kind of teaches you is that you can go without food. And mm -hmm. like you said, it's strange that we think that that's a strange concept because that was the basic assumption for, you know, most of our existence as humans, that there were going to be times that we went without food. But now we see that going without food for, you know, four hours is considered abnormal. Uh, and so um, that's part of the you know, that's certainly a big factor in the uh, mess that we find ourselves in. But uh, I, you know, I think fasting for me has basically taught me that, you know, if there isn't good food available, then I'm just going to go without eating for a little while. And there's there's uh, no problem with that. So I, I kind and of use not gonna die. my emergency plan. Um, I, uh, you know, I travel a lot, as uh, everyone knows, I'm on the road constantly. And uh, I would say that the 
the strangest thing I travel with is my cast iron pan. So wherever oh, I, I am, it. I can uh, <laughs> grab some, you know, grab some meat and throw it in a pan and, and be able to eat uh, good food instead of being uh, stuck with takeout stuff. That's so fantastic. does that regularly get yanked out at uh, the security check at the airport? Well, that has to go in the checked bag. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cynthia, I, I I love this. I'm I'm having so much fun. I would love to ask you another four hours of questions, but this is the point where we need to say we need to kind of wrap it up. Tell us, um, you've got a book. What's the name of the book? Where do folks get it? How do folks connect with you? Let's get all that information. Yeah, thank you. This has been most enjoyable. So uh, my book is called Intermittent Fasting Transformation. Oh, I have that's 45. what that is on the, behind you. Okay. Yes. Um, and it was published in March of 2022. Uh, it's doing very, very well, for which I'm very grateful. You can find it on most bookstores, Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore. I always encourage people to go to their local bookstore because our Brick and mortar businesses have really had a, a tough time the past two years. You can find me on my website, www.cynthiatherlow.com. Um, I have an amazing podcast. Dr. Phil has been on there uh, called Everyday Wellness. I really am very fortunate. It's been probably one of my favorite ways to network within my incredible community. Uh, I am on Instagram, very active on Instagram. I am on Twitter. Be forewarned, I can be snarky. And I do have a free Facebook group called Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle backslash my name. There are men and women in that group. It's a very supportive, nurturing, anti-drama environment. I have zero tolerance for drama, but that's probably the easiest way to connect with me. But I always say that uh, the podcast probably gives people the best sense of, uh, you know, a lot of my philosophies and and a lot of my area of focus. I just had a podcast out yesterday talking about leptin resistance with uh, a leptin expert because I've gotten so many questions about leptin, but it's a fascinating hormone. So that's everyday wellness. Mm -hmm. All right. Very good. Everyday wellness with uh, Cynthia Thurlow. This has been yet another one of those great ones. I get, I get to work through the transcript from the show and I, I was working through last week's uh, before we, this show came on and just, I was wow. I just feel so blessed that I get to be sit here and listen to you smart people talk about all this stuff. It's changed my life for the better. All right, Phil, we good for the day? I think so. Another enjoyable conversation. Thank, thank you, Cynthia, and uh, look forward to maybe having you back on again sometime to continue it. Absolutely. All right. Well, you guys who listen know the drill, but for those who don't know the drill, this is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. Dr. Philip Ovedia, you can reach him on uh, the web at ovediahearthealth.com. Take his metabolic health quiz at ifixhearts.co. I recommend everybody do that. Find out if you're one of the 12% or the 88%. And finally, I highly recommend you follow him on Twitter at ifixhearts. He's a good follow. Hit that subscribe button. We drop a new podcast episode every Tuesday at midnight, and we'll talk to you next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com dot com slash talk.